You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. An interesting thing about eagles, eagles can be found on every continent of the earth except for Antarctica. Eagles also, interesting thing about them, they fly higher than almost any other bird and they are incredibly strong, so strong in fact that some species of eagles can even carry off deer and have been known to carry off large monkeys. And so for, for these reasons, people have always had great reverence for eagles. They've, always, uh, they've often chosen eagles as national symbols of many countries, including the Roman Empire had an eagle as its symbol. You know, Germany has an eagle as its symbol. Russia, the United States, we all use the eagle as our symbol. It's a symbol of strength. It's, it flies higher than any other bird, and it's stronger than any other bird. You know, one of the interesting things about eagles, though, is this. It's how they teach their young ones to fly lie. For the first uh, few months after an eaglet is hatched, that little eaglet has it made in the shade, right? He's up high, perched up in a high tree or on a cliff, and he has a great view from that high perch. And mom comes by every couple hours to feed him, and he's, he gets nice and plump. But here's an interesting thing. The eagle's nests are actually built in such a way that they have sticks pointing inward, which means this, that as that eaglet grows and gets fatter and plumper, it becomes increasingly uncomfortable for the eaglet to stay in the nest. And no doubt the little eaglet starts to wonder, why is it that mom and dad don't make the nest a little bit more comfortable? Don't they love me? Don't they care about me? Don't they want me to be happy? And then little does the eaglet realize, though, that this is part of the design. It's part of the design from the beginning, part of the grand plan from the beginning to get him to do something that he wouldn't want to do otherwise, and that is to fly. And then another thing happens. About four months after the eaglet's hatched, after four months of comfort hanging out in the nest, one day, Mama Eagle comes by. And she starts shaking the nest with her big claws and flapping those wings and literally kicks the eaglet out of the nest. And as our little eaglet friend is bumped out of his nest, he begins to fall. He begins to tumble hundreds of feet down towards the ground below. Feathers flying, you know, the eaglet squawking, frantically fluttering, freaking out as the ground races towards him and the rocks below get bigger and bigger and closer until suddenly Mama Eagle swoops in underneath and catches the eaglet and carries him on outstretched wings back to the nest right that's what we talk about we talk about being carried on eagle's wings so the little eaglet you know he says whew you know that was close I guess mom you know she must have made a mistake I'm sure she didn't do that on purpose right she accidentally bumped me I'm sure that won't happen again and and then um then guess what a day or two later mama eagle comes by again and bumps the nest again, sending little eaglet, you know, tumbling towards the earth below again, screeching and squawking once again. And and once again, she swoops down underneath him to catch him and return him to the nest. And this process is repeated over and over until the little eaglet learns to spread his wings and soar. You see, the eaglet learns to fly. He learns to soar higher and becomes stronger than any other bird Uh, by a design in which he is not allowed to get too comfortable, by a design in which he's literally kicked out of the nest. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, interestingly, God says that he does the exact same thing with us. 
Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 32. It says this, In a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. And here's the thing, check this out. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading its wings, catching them and bearing them up on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. See, in this section, God is recounting to his people how he has led them and how he has guided them throughout their life. And he describes himself, he says, this is like this, I'm like that loving father and I often work in your lives the same way that a mother eagle teaches the eaglet to fly. By allowing things which are uncomfortable, by allowing circumstances where it feels like you're tumbling out of control, but it's for a purpose and it comes from a heart of love. And that purpose isn't to destroy, but it's so that we might learn to soar to even greater heights. So here in Acts chapter 8, you know what we're going to see as we study this section. We're going to see this very principle at work in the lives of the early Christians. And as we do, we're going to consider how it's also true in our lives as well. The title of today's message is, Kicked Out of the Nest. You could say that from Acts chapter 7 all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the focus has been primarily on God's work in and through the people of Israel. Now there have been some exceptions and for sure throughout the whole thing in view has been this idea that God cares about all nations and God wants to save all people but the focus from the whole Bible up until Acts chapter 7 has been God's work in and through the people of Israel and starting here in chapter 8 of Acts that's going to change. We're going to see a great turning point in the Bible, a great turning point actually in history, where now the time has come for a great movement to begin of people going out into all the world and spreading the good news of the gospel and welcoming people everywhere to know God and be saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. This movement is one which goes on to this day. It's one that we've all been touched by. In fact, if you're a Christian, it's a movement that you're even a part of. And here in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see how it began. And so for those of you who like outlines, here's what it's going to be. Here's how we're going to break it down. First of all, we're going to see a surprising catalyst. Next, we're going to see an unintentional missionaries. And thirdly, we're going to see something that money can't buy. So a surprising catalyst, unintentional missionaries, and something money can't buy. Let's begin by looking at this surprising catalyst in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, the execution referred to here in verse 1 is the execution of Stephen, which if you were here with us last week, that was what we studied in chapter 7. We saw Stephen, who was this Christian man, a leader in the early church. And because of his Christian faith, his beliefs in Jesus, he was accused of blasphemy and he was put to death, making him the very first Christian martyr. And this man, Saul, who we read about here, we read that he was an enthusiastic supporter of Stephen's execution. But here's what happened that we see now after Stephen was executed. For these people like Saul, who didn't like the Christians, who wanted to see the Christians silenced and squashed and, and go away, Stephen's death, rather than satisfying their hatred of Christians, instead it made them, they were like animals who got their first taste of blood and all they could think about was getting some more. 
and Stephen was executed, and, and these people said, you know what? What we did to Stephen was good, but you know what it was? It was a good start. There's a whole lot of other people out there just like Stephen, and I'll tell you this. If Stephen deserved to die, well, then those people deserve to die too. What we did to Stephen was good, but you know what would be better is if we did the same thing to all the Christians out there. And they said, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go from house to house and we're going to find these Christians and we're going to give them a choice. We're going to give them a choice to, to recant their faith in Jesus and deny that Jesus is Lord or we'll arrest them for blasphemy and if they still refuse to recant those things that they espouse to be true about Jesus, then we'll execute them just like we executed Stephen. You see, those very things that we just made a confession of faith about, these are the kinds of things that people were being forced to recant under threats of violence and death. The execution of Stephen, what it did, the effect it had was that it opened up the floodgates of persecution against the Christians. Until now, it was only the apostles who had been targeted, who had been arrested and beaten, but now every believer is being threatened with violence and even death. And so the Christians, we see that they begin to flee Jerusalem. They begin to flee to escape this persecution. We're talking here about families. We're talking about moms and dads with kids. We're talking about young people just beginning their life on their own. And they know what's going to happen if they get caught. And it turns out that they're Christians. Either they're going to have to deny their faith. And if they're unwilling to do that, well, then they know it's going to be bad for them. And so they flee to the surrounding areas, to Samaria in the north of Jerusalem and to Judea in the south of Jerusalem. Now, here's why this is interesting. Because back in Acts chapter 1, which we studied weeks ago, we, we read this interesting phrase that while Jesus was still with his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he told them this, this very important phrase. He said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, but now here's the thing. Six years roughly have gone by since that time. Six years and they haven't left Jerusalem. They're still here in Jerusalem. They haven't ventured out beyond Jerusalem. Roughly six years have passed and there's been no initiative taken for, of these people to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, out beyond Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas. They've been comfortable in Jerusalem. They've had a great Christian community there. They had this incredible koinonia that we've been talking about for several weeks, right? This Christian community, that intimate fellowship and sharing of all things, sharing of spiritual things and sharing of material things. They did life together. They ate meals together. They worshiped God together. And it was great. And sure, yeah, Jesus had told them to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but none of them wanted to leave Jerusalem. I mean, who would? Outside of Jerusalem, there's no Christians, and there in Jerusalem, they have this wonderful community of Christians where they feel safe, where they feel comfortable. It was like their little nest, only now the nest is being shaken. Now suddenly that nest isn't so comfortable as it used to be. And surely they're starting to wonder, God, what, what's going on? Why are you letting this happen to us, God? We're the ones who follow you. We're the ones who obey you. God, why would you let this happen to us? Don't you love us? If you love us, you could stop this. Why aren't you stopping this? But do you see what's happening? God has a plan. God has had a desire. God has had a vision for these people for a long time that they wouldn't just stay in Jerusalem forever, but that they would go out from there and bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the surrounding areas, even to the ends of the earth. And if they're not going to go on their own, 
Well, then God will give him a little bit of motivation to do so, right? Like a mother eagle, he'll kick him out of the nest if that's what it takes to teach them to fly. God would even allow a great persecution to come upon these believers if that's what it would take to get them moving in the direction he wanted them to go in. If that's what it took to get them to go where he had called them to go. See, this persecution against the Christians... It turned out to be a a surprising catalyst, didn't it? A surprising catalyst to get these Christians moving from where they are to where God wants them to be. To get them doing what God wants them to do and has called them to do. And I think this is true in many of our lives. That sometimes God uses pressing circumstances to guide us in his will. I would venture to guess there are probably some of us in here who are like me, right? You can be a little bit hard-headed at times, maybe even stubborn. And God, sometimes for people like us, he will put pressing circumstances in our lives to get our attention and to move us into his will for our lives. Like that little eaglet who has to be shaken up out of the nest to begin to fly. Sometimes our lives have to be shaken up as well. And God will do that. He'll shake us up out of what is comfortable for us to get us moving in the direction he wants us to go. Maybe it's getting laid off from a job. Maybe it's a medical issue that comes up in your life. Maybe it's a broken relationship or a lost relationship. Maybe it's getting busted for something you've been doing in secret and you wonder, you know, now it's come to light. Maybe it's an unforeseen change Maybe even an unwanted change in your life and you wonder why, God? Why are you allowing this? But I want you to see this. I want you to see this. That like these people, perhaps it is precisely because God loves you that he has allowed difficult circumstances to shake up your life. Perhaps it is the very providence of a loving God who desires to do something in and through your life that you are experiencing that difficulty. That was certainly the case here with these people. And it is one of the ways that God works in our lives too. And so even in the midst of difficult circumstances, there must be this knowledge in the back of our minds that tells us, I may not particularly like this situation. I'm not sure even what God is trying to do through this, but I know this, that I can rest in the knowledge that God loves me and I can trust in my loving Heavenly Father that He will work all things for my ultimate good and his ultimate glory we read there in in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and they made great lamentation over him now I like that Luke includes this statement here that devout men and these are supposedly Jewish people these aren't Christians because all the Christians are fleeing that these devout men came and they took Stephen's body and they gave him a proper burial. And what, what Luke is telling us here is this, that it wasn't that all the Jewish people in Jerusalem had animosity against the Christians. Yes, there were people like Saul who wanted to destroy the Christians, but lest we think that all the Jews hated the Christians, Luke tells us that there were some devout men there who wept over what they saw happening and they came and they gave Stephen a dignified burial. And in verse 3 we read this, But Saul was ravaging the church and he was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. 
This man, Saul of Tarsus, we read that he ravaged the church. That word ravage, it's like a picture of a wild animal going on a rampage and just tearing things up. He went from house to house. He was hunting Christians. We read later on in the book of Acts that Saul, what he did was he compelled these people to blasphemy. In other words, he compelled them, you know, you can imagine the knife to their throat, compelling them to blaspheme Jesus and to recant their faith. He had no mercy. We read here that he viciously attacked Christians, even women. He had no mercy at all. It it was a dark time for the believers there in Jerusalem. But there was something that God was doing in the midst of this that that would change the world forever, actually. The Christian movement, this church, which, which had grown, it had grown healthy in that little incubator of Jerusalem, right? In the nest where for six years they had been instructed in the word of, word of God. And they had learned the ways of God and they grew up into strong, healthy Christians. Now they're being spread abroad into the surrounding regions, thousands of them. And they've got what? They've got information in their heads about Jesus and they've got love in their hearts for God. And they go into the surrounding region. And little did they realize that those six years they spent in Jerusalem, it was a time of preparation for what was coming next. They were being equipped during that time. Little did they realize they were being equipped for what was next, that they were going to be sent out into the world to take what they had learned and what they'd received and give it to other people. This persecution, it turned out to be a surprising catalyst for the spread of the gospel, for the beginning of a movement, and for the salvation of many people. And I do believe that this should give us some perspective on our lives and God's work in our lives and the circumstances of our lives. And here's how I would put it. Do not despise difficult circumstances that come from the hand of a loving God. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Don't despise difficult circumstances that come from the hand of a loving God. You may find that they are a surprising catalyst for something good. That brings us to our next section. In verse 4, we read about unintentional missionaries. Now these people who were scattered abroad, they went about preaching the word. Instead of silencing the Christians, instead of stamping out the flames of faith, this persecution only succeeded in spreading Christianity into the surrounding regions. You see, the winds of persecution, they only served to fan the flames of Christianity, and they sent out sparks in all directions, which ignited little fires all over the place. Everywhere these Christians went, we see that they talked about Jesus. These Christians became unintentional missionaries. For six years, they had been in this wonderful church in Jerusalem. They had learned about Jesus. They had studied the scriptures. And now they're scattered abroad. They're scattered like seeds cast by the hand of the farmer. And throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, they go out as accidental missionaries, as unintentional missionaries. And they live out their Christian lives. And they talk about Jesus wherever they go. And these things that they had heard in church for all these years, you know, the things that you hear over and over again. You say, yeah, I've already heard that. Yeah, I already know it. Well, now was the opportunity for them to begin to share those things with other people. Uh, A very similar thing happened actually in the 1940s in in China when the communists took control of China. One of the first things that the communists did in China to eradicate Christianity, which was their goal, one of their their strategy was this. The first thing they did was they they, uh, arrested and they deported all of the foreign missionaries. The next thing they did was that they broke up the Christian congregations and they forcibly relocated Christians throughout the entire country, thinking that apart from each other, apart from fellowship together, that Christianity would just kind of, you know, with time fizzle out. 
But just like what happened here in the book of Acts, the same thing happened in China. The persecution that was intended to stamp out Christianity had the exact opposite effect. Rather than killing Christianity, it caused it to spread incredibly throughout that country. Many of the missionaries who had been deported, they went to work in the surrounding countries of Southeast Asia. And the Chinese Christians, they were no longer concentrated just in certain areas where there had been missions. Now they were spread out throughout the entire country. They became unintentional missionaries. They weren't professional preachers. They hadn't been to Bible college. They were just normal Christians and everywhere they went, they lived the Christian life, which by the way is just so incredibly countercultural. In every society of the world, they lived the Christian life and they talked about Jesus. And today, almost 70 years later, there is an indigenous Chinese Christian movement which is estimated to be around 100 million people strong, which is 40 times what it was before the communists began persecuting Christians in China. You know, Tertullian, the, the early church father, he, he wrote this famous statement about the persecution of the church, and this is what he said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because what he's saying is that historically, rather than destroying Christianity, persecution has caused Christianity to become stronger and to grow and to spread. And here's what I would say in reflection on that. You know, here in the United States, we don't have to deal with persecution. Now, some people would would argue that maybe it's on the way, and maybe it is, but I would say this. Maybe it's not the worst thing that could ever happen, and here's why. Because I think there's a greater threat to Christianity, and it's, it's more than persecution from outside forces. A greater threat to Christianity is, the, is this rampant sense of complacency and a lack of a sense of mission. You see, it's, that's something that we here in America, we have to deal with and face. We don't face persecution for our faith, but the threat that Christianity faces in our society is this sense of complacency uh, uh, towards spiritual matters. It's a sense of a, a lack of a sense of mission by those who are Christians. And right now as we speak, you know, I was thinking about it, that Christians are being persecuted in Iraq, in Syria, in China, and Iran. And I'll tell you this. There are no lukewarm Christians in those places. You're not going to go and find lukewarm Christians in places like that where people are being persecuted. Because for those people, to be a Christian, it's all or nothing, right? It could cost you your life. They, They take it very seriously. Christians in Syria, Christians in underground churches in Iran, they don't have time for the petty stuff that Christians in our society often, you know, complain about or debate about, right? Like... Like, oh, uh, you know, I couldn't, uh, couldn't find a parking spot right up front, so uh, I just went home, right? Or stuff like, you know, people in Syria don't say stuff like that, the Christians there. Or, you know, uh, the preacher, he's pretty good looking, but uh, he's not really funny enough for me. I like a lot of jokes in my sermons, right? Or, uh, you know, the songs were good, but I really like to have a smoke machine when I'm worshiping, right? These are things that no Iranian Christian has ever said ever. And here's the thing, though. You know what? Uh, you don't have to be persecuted in order to keep a right focus on what matters. There's another way, and, and which is much more applicable to our situation. And that's this, having a sense of mission. If we have a sense of mission, if we understand what God has called us to be, what God has called us to do, to go into all the world and be ambassadors for him and bring this message of hope and redemption and new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you have that focus, when you have that as your driving force, it keeps you hyper-focused on what matters. 
You know, here at Whitefields, that's the kind of church we want to be. I put it this way. We don't want to just be people who gather to study the book of Acts. We want to be people who live out the book of Acts here locally and beyond. You know, and coming up, we have some outreaches over the next few months. These are great opportunities for you to engage in the mission of God here in our community. And I would encourage you to get involved in those things. You know, this area, this is for us, like it was for them, Judea and Samaria. This is where God has planted us. And may we be these kinds of people who are actively engaged in the mission of God wherever God has planted us, right? That we're transforming this community by living counterculturally Christian lives and talking about Jesus wherever we go. Let's continue reading from verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, where they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many people who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Philip was a man like Stephen. He was one of the seven who we read about in Acts chapter 6 who were chosen to minister to the practical needs of the widows in the early church. Now, I'm not going to give you the whole historical background on Samaria, but I'm going to tell you this. The most important thing you can know about Samaria is that it was full of Samaritans. And Jewish people and Samaritans, in general, they didn't like each other. There was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of prejudice between Jews and Samaritans. For example, this is what made Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan so incredibly shocking to his listeners. They couldn't believe that Jesus would go and tell a story in which a Samaritan was actually the good guy in the story. Right? Because in their view, Samaritans were just the worst, right? Like there's nobody worse. Uh, that's why it was so shocking that Jesus decided to travel through Samaria rather than going around Samaria, which was the normal Jewish practice. And as he was going through Samaria, Jesus stops at this well and he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. There was just this long-standing, deep-seated animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people in that day. So here's Philip now and he goes down and it says that he proclaimed to them the Christ. He proclaimed Christ to them. He laid aside his prejudices, his cultural, you know, uh, prejudices, and he talks to these people about Jesus. And this is the first recorded instance of the gospel being preached outside of Jerusalem. And I love this, that it says that Philip went there and he proclaimed Jesus to them. And let me tell you, that is what we as Christians are to be about. We are to be about proclaiming Jesus Not conservative politics, not tips and strategies about how to have your best life now, not conspiracy theories, not even moralism. What we are to be about is about proclaiming Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what people need. That is what we need more than anything. Jesus, who he is and what he's done and what it means for you and I. And I love what it says there in verse 8, that when these people in Samaria, when they found Jesus, there was much joy in that city. Now here's something I want to I point out to you. Notice this. It says there was great joy in this city, but how? Why? How, how did that come about? It was the result of something else. There was great joy in the city of Samaria because 
there was also great sorrow in Jerusalem. If there hadn't been that great sorrow in Jerusalem, there wouldn't have been this great joy in Samaria. You see, the, the, the sorrow in Jerusalem, it was the persecution of the Christians. And you can imagine those Christians crying out to the Lord, why God, why are you letting this happen? But now we see what God was doing. How from the sorrow in Jerusalem, he brought great joy in Samaria. Joy that would last for eternity. And that was God's plan because you see God too. At one time he submitted himself to a season of great sorrow in order to bring about an eternity of great joy. That is the gospel that on the cross Jesus traded joy for sorrow in order that he might replace our eternal sorrow with eternal joy. And that message of the gospel that caused the people of Samaria to have great joy, we read. Because you know this, when you really understand the gospel, this is the result. Great joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. I read an article this week that said that the front range here where we live here in Colorado, this part of Colorado, according to this one study, the front range of Colorado has the highest standard of living of any place in the United States. In other words, you know, from a financial standpoint, from a, you know, a quality of life standpoint, you couldn't live anywhere better than here on the front range of Colorado. I think Colorado is a great place to live. I love living here. But here's the thing, even though this is a great place to live, I wonder how many people, if you would just begin to scratch beneath the surface, what you'd find is that they live with a profound sense, a pervasive sense of sadness in their life, that there's a lack of joy in the lives of people. And maybe that's even true of you. Maybe it's true of people that you love. And I can't help but be struck by this phrase when I think of that, that here in the city of Samaria, there was much joy. And why was there much joy in this city? How did that come about? It came about this way because these people heard and understood the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ and what he had done for them. I'll tell you why the gospel brings joy to your heart and to your mind. And here's why. Because joy is intimately connected to hope. Having joy is a prerequisite, you know, sorry, having hope is a prerequisite for having joy. If you have hope in your heart, you will have joy in your heart. You know, there's no message of greater hope than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no message which can give you so much hope in life and in death than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Philip, he goes there and he proclaims Jesus to the Samaritans and the result is much joy. Philip tells them that God loves them, that God has made a way for them to be forgiven and redeemed and made new with life everlasting. And as a result, their hearts are filled with hope, and that hope leads to great joy. The same thing is true for us and for our city here. In order to experience great joy, we need great hope, and there is no greater hope than that found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third section here, and that is this, something that money can't buy. Let's read from verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed." Many people we see in Samaria believed the gospel. They were baptized as Christians, including this local magician named Simon. Now let's read from verse 14. 
Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now it would seem here that these people had believed the gospel, they had been baptized in the name of Jesus, but yet for some reason the apostles were then sent for to pray for these people, these Samaritan believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask, hey, don't, don't you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? I mean, didn't these people, when they believed, when they were baptized, when they put their faith in Jesus, didn't the Holy Spirit come into them and indwell them? And I would say absolutely yes, I believe that they did receive the Holy Spirit in that way when they believed, and that all of you do. When you believe, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residency in you as a seal upon you that you belong to God. But here's what's interesting. It would seem that there was a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit which they had not yet received. This is that empowering that we've talked about. When Jesus even told his disciples, wait in Jerusalem and you will be clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Right? This is that empowering of the Holy Spirit for effective service in the areas that he had called them to. That's what we're seeing here. Another reason it was important to have the apostles come and pray for these Samaritan believers was that it showed unity. It showed that this wasn't a new thing. This wasn't something different. This wasn't some kind of different form of following Jesus. The Samaritans were full Christians, no different than anyone else, and they were, they were all one. They were unified. And we read from verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon was was actually probably more of an illusionist than he was a true magician. We see here that he offered money to the apostles to buy what he assumed were tricks that the apostles were using to manipulate the people. It's from this man Simon that we get the word simony. Now simony is the practice of making a business out of spiritual things, making a business out of that which is holy. Simony has been practiced historically at different times in the church when positions, ecclesiastical positions in the church were sold to the highest bidder. Simony is practiced today when people try to get rich off of other people who are seeking God and they try to get rich off of them. But Peter is very quick to explain to Simon. He says in no uncertain terms that the things of God cannot be purchased with money. They cannot be used to manipulate people. And Simon needs to repent because clearly his heart is not right with God. The intent of Simon's heart is to trick people, to manipulate people, and to promote himself. And Peter says, man, that is so messed up. That is so wrong. But Peter says, Simon, I'll tell you this, man. There's still hope for you. If you will repent and you will turn to God, God will receive you and God will forgive you. And I want you to check out Simon's response in verse 24. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. Look what Simon did. He passed the buck, right? Instead of humbling himself before God and repenting, Simon asked Peter to pray for him that he would be spared the consequences of his sin. But here's the thing. 
for Simon and for any of us, Peter couldn't repent for Simon. Only Simon could humble his own heart before God. Only Simon could ask God for forgiveness and receive God's grace. And that's true of each and every one of us here. No one else can do it for you. No one else can do it for me. For Simon, the door was open. The opportunity for grace was available. To be forgiven, to be made right with God. If only he would reach out and take it. No, but the thing was, no one else could do it for him. And the same is true for each and every one of us here today. Grace is available for you today, but no one else can do it for you. It has to be you. It has to be you humbling yourself before God and saying, God, I need your grace. Legend has it that Simon then went on to become a prominent false teacher who taught a heresy, which you might have heard of. It's called Gnosticism. Now, we don't know for sure if that's what happened. That's what, you know, church historians have said. But it would seem that Simon never really made that step of taking hold of the grace of God, of really turning to God and asking for grace and receiving forgiveness. He wanted to buy the power of God with money, but when it came down to the grace of God, he balked and he never received it. See, here's the interesting thing about grace. Grace is free in one sense, but yet in another sense it costs everything. You see, the thing about grace is this. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. But yet, there is a cost involved in receiving grace. And what it costs you is, it costs you your life. In order to receive the grace of God, you have to humble yourself before God. You have to yield control of your life over to God. And that's what it means when we talk about not only making him our Savior, but making him our Lord. And that is what Simon was unwilling to do. And the question for us is, what about you? In Isaiah chapter 55, God gives an invitation to whoever will come. He says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. In Revelation chapter 22, we read a similar invitation to come and take hold of that which money cannot buy. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and the one who hears, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The invitation is open to you. It's open to us today as well. See, Simon, though, this invitation was open to him as well, but he was afraid to receive the grace of God because he wasn't willing to humble himself before God and yield control of his life over to God. I want you to check out the very last verse in this section, which we're going to end with, which is verse 25. It says this, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. These people who have given their lives over to God, who have yielded control of their lives over to God, look at how their lives are so very much characterized by an enormous amount of hope, an enormous amount of joy and purpose and mission. And notice the contrast there with Simon, who's unwilling to give his life over to God. And we read in verse 23, remember we read this, that his heart, his life was caught in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Do you see that contrast there? 
These people who have received the grace of God, who have yielded their lives to the loving hand of God, these people have peace and joy and love in their hearts. They're truly free. They were kicked out of the nest only to find that it was the loving grace of God that did it. Like a mother eagle who was not shaking them up to destroy them, but to help them to soar to even higher heights and even greater vistas with him. And that same thing will be true of you and I as we yield our lives to God in his loving providential care. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your providence. We thank you, like in this story, we can see, Lord, that you... You love us and you do things in our lives that we don't even always understand. Lord, thank you that we can have this hope, we can have this trust that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who will even kick us out of the nest sometimes if that's what we need because you want to do something new in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that in all of our circumstances we can rest in that knowledge and we can take great joy and great hope in that. And Lord, today I pray that as we reflect on this attitude of Simon, this man who who knew what he should do, he knew the right thing to do, he had grace offered to him, but yet he was unwilling to receive it because he was unwilling to yield his life to you, God. May we look at that story and may we not follow that way. May we be those who say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, take my life, it's all yours. Take the sin, take the mistakes, take the folly, take all of it. You give me the direction and I will follow you. Thank you, Lord, for this great hope that we have in you. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.